Let's go ahead and read the first 15 verses of Romans, or rather 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, sorry, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship, the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so we would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment. Whoops, I moved it the wrong way. Whoops, let's try again. All right, good, there we go. But I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Well, that's the first 15 verses, and if we can get through those today, I'll uh, feel like I'm doing pretty well. All right, verses 1 and 2. Uh, and these verses, they are uh, shorter verses, many of them. N- not necessarily, well, these, yeah, they're a little shorter. And some of them are shorter than this. And they go together quite well. So I think covering the 15 verses in the time we have may not be a lost cause completely. So verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Okay, so um, we want you to know about the grace of God bestowed in the churches in Macedonia. Grace um, is variously defined, and just because there are more than one definitions of a thing doesn't mean that uh, some of the definitions are necessarily wrong. It's been said that grace is unmerited favor. Well, it certainly is that. There's no favor that we get from God that we merit, nothing good that we get from him that we merited. So um, we can certainly say that grace is that, but we can define it a little more. I like one of my favorite verses says, uh, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. So um, I like to say, and it's not original with me, that grace is uh, God's power working in the heart and life of the believer, enabling the believer to do the things that please God. So, 
We're going to tell you, he says, about the grace of God bestowed in the churches in Macedonia, the way that God worked in the hearts of the believers in Macedonia to, to enable them to do the things that please God. How's that? Well, in a great trial of affliction. A trial meaning uh, a test or a proof. Now, when God tests us, you know, he always knows the outcome before. We uh, sometimes use the word experiment, and um, it's, uh, we use it as though, um, well, colloquially as though we didn't know what was going to happen. But um, when scientists experiment, they either know the exact outcome that will, will follow, or they know it to within a couple of possibilities. Like you have, a, well, like the phase three trials of these uh, vaccines that they had. You know, they would give a control group and a, and a uh, intervention group, and then they would compare the results of the two groups. And they knew, you know, either it's going to tell us that it's effective or it's not effective, and to what percent. They pretty much knew the outcome. It's not one of those things, well, let's pour some stuff into a test tube and see what happens. This is the high school chemistry uh, foolishness when the professor's not in the room that results in burning down that wing of the school or something like that. And that's not the kind of experiment or the kind of test that God does. Actually, in the uh, 19th century, uh, scientists would sometimes give lectures about science. And uh, actually, in the early 19th century, they weren't even called scientists yet. And they, these would be called public experiments. But it wasn't, again, it wasn't like, we're going to have an audience here and we're going to put some stuff in a test tube and we have no idea what's going to happen. It wasn't like that at all. It was like a demonstration. Watch this. You know, and it's like your science teacher did. Remember your high school science teachers? Look, I put this clear chemical in this clear uh, solution and uh, then I put in this other clear chemical and it turns blue. Isn't that cool? Because he, he knew what would happen. And when God tests us, he knows what's going to happen. He knows, for one thing, because he sees the future as clearly as he sees the present, which is a lot more clearly than you and I see the present, for that matter. So God knows exactly what we will do. And also because he knows us, and he knows his grace working in us. So this great, this great trial, this great testing and great proof, wasn't as though God were thinking, I wonder if the Macedonians will really be true to me if they're tested. I guess I'll find out. Let's pour some, let's pour some uh, affliction into a, a test tube and see what the Macedonians do. No, but God knew, and God was demonstrating it, demonstrating it to uh, other, other believers. Here are the believers in Corinth, which is not part of Macedonia, it's Achaia, but demonstrating to the believers in Achaia, look, I've been working in the believers in Macedonia, and also demonstrating it to the believers in Macedonia. When God tries us and we come forth as gold, God is showing us that he's working in our lives. God is showing us that his grace is, is having an effect on us. So a great trial of affliction, uh, persecution, harassment, plundering. Uh, you know how we read the book of Acts, and Acts doesn't even tell us the whole story. Uh, and which, you know, it, it's not that it's hiding stuff from us to deceive us, it's just that it is not an exhaustive, comprehensive account of everything that was done in the church or to the Christians, uh, not even to the apostles. And further on, we read that 
Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us of the things that happened to him. And we find out that he had uh, received a lot more abuse and a lot more persecution than is recorded in the book of Acts. Anyway, and by the way, no history book uh, worth its salt records every bit of information that's known about that period. The historian always makes a decision about what uh, helps him to tell the story he has to tell. Anyway, a lot of affliction, uh, persecution from the Jews, persecution from the Romans, persecution from their fellow Greeks, or fellow Macedonians, but in the midst of that, he said, in this great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, the overflow of their joy, uh, amid their deep poverty, so they were profoundly poor, and yet they abound in, in the riches of their liberality. Liberality is a word that we don't use as much nowadays, uh, partially because the, it's based on the word liberal, and the word liberal over the last 140 or so years has, has taken on a radically, wildly different meaning. Words do that sometimes. The word conservative has, has dramatically changed its meaning several times, most recently within the last five years, come to mean something it didn't mean before. Well, liberal, liberality from liberal, originally liberal meant... Uh, uh, favoring free and or generous, favoring freedom or being generous. In this case, generous. So their liberality was their generosity. So the, hey, look at the Macedonians. You can see that God was working in their lives because even though they were enduring severe testing and affliction, even though they were profoundly poor, yet um, God's work in their lives abounded to such a degree that with joy they were generous in their giving. All right, let's see if we get down to verse, yes, good. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the, of the ministering to the saints. So the Macedonian believers earnestly requested Paul as a favor that they might have a share in the ministering to the poor saints in Jerusalem. By the way, I don't know why the saints in Jerusalem were poor at that time. Various theories have been suggested, and I don't, it doesn't have to be any of those theories. Maybe they were just poor. Maybe that's just, uh, that happens sometimes, right? The folks that live in some area are poor. Maybe the crops failed. Anyway, the folks at Jerusalem were poor, and so Paul was taking up this gift, and the Macedonians were practically begging to be allowed to contribute. We want to have a part in that. We want to be part of that. Maybe you've felt that way sometimes. Probably you have had that feeling sometimes where you see something and you just want to have a hand in that. Enough that you would beg, please let me. I want to contribute to that too. I want to be part of helping those people. And that is an evidence of God's work of grace in the heart of the believers that we have a desire to minister to the saints. Verse 5. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. You notice there the word only is in italics, uh, which means that it doesn't uh, translate a word um, that is directly a word that's in the text, 
but that the words in the text imply that it needs to be there. Um, and so that doesn't, that doesn't mean that we ought to consider it as not belonging there, but as being implied. And the old King James doesn't supply that word. He just says, and not as we had hoped, which makes it sound like, wow, it didn't turn out the way we hoped. I hoped that they would be generous. And well, that was kind of a disappointment. Wow. But that's not what it means. It means beyond what we had hoped, not only to the degree that we, beyond our expectations. We hoped that they would be very generous, and they exceeded our, our expectations. And, you know, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. It's exciting when God is doing exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think in the lives of believers, in the lives of our fellow believers. And we see God working in people. That's, that's exciting. That's exciting almost seems too trivial a word. Um, that fills us with joy. You know, the Apostle John said, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. And that's true of us with regard to uh, our, our physical children, actually those of us to whom God has given children. There's no greater joy than to see them uh, doing what's right. And, and uh, when they say something that's true or, or they post something that's true, and they, yeah, that's good, that's really good. Or, or they are... Uh, just stead, steadily following the Lord, and, and, and you just think, oh, that's so good. But also, with regard to um, our just fellow believers whom God has allowed us to have some influence on, and then, you know, it really is a joy even for fellow believers that we haven't necessarily been able to influence, but just to see people who are steadfastly serving the Lord. You know, much is said about social media, uh, for good and ill, especially for ill, um, and rightly so. And social media can be quite a bad thing. It can be. Um, it's, I don't think it's bad to have Facebook. I think it's bad if Facebook has you, but um, has control of you, and I will not be brought under the power of anything. But one of the, you know, there have, been, there have been, admittedly, very discouraging things in Facebook, but one of the encouraging things was to make contact, sort of, contact. Facebook can be called contact. But to sort of make contact in that manner with uh, fellow Christians that I had known in my youth and, well, look at so-and-so still serving the Lord all these years later. And that's encouraging. And, uh, and I think of one dear brother, now very advanced in age, and, and uh, Leah will know who I'm talking about, and still in the same church after 50-some years. And I don't know how he managed to do that, and you wouldn't either if you could see that church today. But anyway, um, but he's still in it. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, it's good to see God working in people more than we hoped. What did these people do more than Paul had hoped? Well, they first gave themselves to the Lord. And that, I think, is the key part in this um, verse. The right kind of giving, I forgot to italicize that phrase, the right kind of giving to God begins with the believer giving himself to God. That's the way it's supposed to be, that I am totally give myself to God. And um, then, you know, since I belong to him, uh, it becomes a small thing to give him some of my earthly stuff <laughs> that I happen to have that is of small import anyway. 
but it begins with, I belong to God. All right? Verse 6, 7, and 8, which really do go together. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Okay. So generous giving is a manifestation of God's work of grace in the heart of the believer. So what about these, these verses, though, more specifically? Well, first of all, we urge Titus. Remember that Paul sent Titus on uh, to go on. To, did it not advance? Um, maybe I forgot to click the clicker. I'm pretty good at that. Sometimes I click and it doesn't move. Sometimes I just forget to click it. Anyway, um, God, uh, Paul had sent Titus on. He was in Macedonia and he had no rest in his spirit because he was concerned about the Corinthians because he had had to, ha- had to write that letter of 1 Corinthians to them, which was in some ways a bit stern. He had to pin their ears back a little bit. And, you know, how, do you want me to come to you in, in gentleness or do you want me to come to you and have to, have to, to uh, scold you? And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But um, he was very concerned about how they would receive that and whether they would get right. And uh, so he sent Titus on ahead with various instructions regarding the other things and also regarding this matter where previously when Paul had been there, apparently the the Corinthians had shown a great interest and willingness in being part of this collection Paul was, was raising for the, uh, the impoverished believers in Judea. And so now he says to Titus, I want you to go and along with everything else, and I want you to see what they're doing about that fellow that was involved in that terrible fornication that was not so much as named among the Gentiles, and I want you to see what they're doing and how they feel towards me, and I want you to see what they're doing about that problem of heresy that they had, of denying uh, that Christ was risen from the dead, and so on. But I also want you to see that they are following through about that collection they were going to take up. And he says, as you abound in everything, in faith, we want to abound in faith, don't we? That's that, and that's a work of, an evidence of God's work of grace in the heart, that we have great faith. And we know that God is working in our hearts because uh, we, we have great faith, uh, not that our faith is so great, but it's, it's anchored in a, a very great God who's able to do very great things for us. And in speech, you know, if any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle whole body. Um, you know, well, if God's grace is working in us, it's, it's shown in, uh, in speech that's right. I, I don't know if there's any of us that would ever... Say, well, I get to the point that I am so far advanced in the grace of God that I'm never going to say the wrong thing, um, ever. Um, it seems like often we say the wrong thing and then we have to go back and say, I'm sorry I said the wrong thing. But, you know, our speech isn't what it used to be, that's for sure. Uh, God is changing us and that in our speech too. And in knowledge, we're growing in grace and we're also growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all diligence, we're we're hopefully abounding in diligence about our Christian walk. We want to be careful about our Christian walk. It's worth putting a lot of effort into that, that I be pleasing to God, and that I be a blessing to my fellow believers. And um, as much as God enables me to, 
and that I'm diligent about all the things that God wants me to be diligent about. Diligent about reading his word, diligent about praying, and so on. And they also are abounding in their love for the apostles. And of course, uh, Titus had already found that out and it brought back the report to Paul that yes, the Corinthians really love you. So um, apparently Paul had sent Titus back and said, make sure that they're also abounding in the grace of giving. And uh, sometimes that's one we don't like to hear about as much. And uh, I know that Sometimes, well, you hear about big ministries, parachurch ministries, and then you hear about large amounts of money being owned, and then you hear about leaders of big parachurch ministries who who are part owners of businesses. And I just read about this, much to my my dismay, about a, a, a guy who was a leader of a parachurch ministry, and was partial owner of a couple of businesses in uh, in the city where that ministry was headquartered. And first of all, I'm I'm highly ambivalent about a leader of a parachurch ministry owning other businesses. What is he doing with that much money anyway? But uh, which he's all making from the from the gifts of God's people. That bothers me. Maybe it shouldn't bother me that much, but it does. But then the, the nature of the business has turned out to be not, not what I could approve of, and the whole thing was bad. And um, When we hear things like that, when Christians, I'm afraid when, Chris, when stories like that come out, and that's the story that has come out, it's not going to be helpful to the church at all, and I haven't by far told you the worst of it, and if you're familiar with the story, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, these things that come out, and they discourage the believers from doing what's right. And I think that there is something to be said for, for um, the preaching on giving being done by someone who can have the satisfaction of saying, I'm not going to get a dime of it. You should, you should be faithful to God in the, uh, in the uh, grace of giving, and none of it is coming to me. Praise the Lord. And you know how Paul talked about, uh, you know, how he, he was, he made tents and he wasn't getting money for uh, the ministry. He, he mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9 that he had the right to be supported, but he said he wasn't claiming that. So, you know, he doesn't want to make anyone to make my boasting uh, vain or void. Um, but yeah, we ought to be faithful in our giving. Not so it comes to me because it doesn't, but just because we ought to be faithful in our giving to the Lord and to the local church for the needs of supporting the local church and to missions and also to benevolence. And that is a manifestation of God's work of grace in the heart of the believer just as much as it is that we're diligent about abstaining from worldliness or that we're diligent about reading God's word or praying, or, or any of the other things that are manifestations of God's grace in, in the heart of the, of the believer. Onward then, to verse 9. Okay, we're doing okay. Verse 9, and my favorite verse in, in this passage. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So why is this in here? Well, this is in here as an example for us of giving. So why should we give? Why should Christians be people who are generous and eager to give? Well, because we want to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. It's enough for a servant that he be as his master. That's good enough for us. If we can be like the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus was very generous. He was one who gave. Really? Well, how did he give? Well, verse 9, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, well, how was he rich? Well, he was in heaven at the right hand of God already. I think he was already at the right hand of God before he came. He's at the right hand of God now that he's gone back, but he was in heaven with God the Father where he had been from eternity past. He had spoken all things into existence by his word, and without him was not anything made that was made. Just making sure. Yes, I do. Um, he, he enjoyed, well, how can we describe heaven? I can't begin to describe it, but only uh, something uh, obviously beyond anything we can imagine, much less find words to say. He was rich, and yet for your sakes he became poor. So how did he do? How did he become poor for our sakes? Well, in coming from earth to heaven, this is the season of the year when we particularly remember that that uh, Christ humbled himself and took on in the form of a man, and was born on this earth. And what an amazing thing that was. Whether he was born on Christmas Day or not, I don't know. On the twenty-fifth, what we call the 25th of December, I think it's possible. I think there's a 1 in 365 chance that he was born on this day. And you may think a greater or lesser chance, I don't know. That doesn't matter. But uh, he was born on a day or night. He was born in some 24-hour period, somewhere in the calendar, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And um, he came to earth from heaven. And uh, what an amazing uh, gift that was. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. And he humbled himself and and took on him the form of a man. I quoted uh, uh, a week or two ago, well, I guess it would have been two or three weeks ago, Um, uh, John Newton's hymn, Now Let Us Join With Hearts and Tongues, and talking about how uh, Jesus who passed the angels by assumed our flesh to bleed and die, and still he makes it his abode as man he fills the throne of God, that he would take on him the form of man. Thus he he, uh, was rich, and yet he became poor for our sakes. And also in living a life of service, He was among his disciples as one who served. When they were all together there for the Last Supper, and they had lately been prone to discuss among themselves, apparently in disputatious terms, which of them would be greatest and what their rank and pecking order would be in the kingdom of God. And a couple of them had perhaps had the embarrassment of having their mother come and request for them the chief places in the kingdom of God. And I, I imagine James and John standing up there, oh, Mom, 
no, Mom. Um, we'll just get the top places on our own. You don't have to ask. But uh, that had happened. And, in a, you know, in a, in a group of guys who were all concerned about having the top spots, and, and uh, here they had been, and, you know, it was typical when you went to someone's house, and you've heard it before, it was like standard, one of the courtesies that a, uh, a host would show to guests was to wash their feet. Now, we don't do that to our guests uh, nowadays, and, and I'm glad that, more as a guest than as a host, I don't want somebody washing my feet. I'll take care of that myself. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, that was something that was done for guests. And they weren't any of them doing it because they were all going to be the greatest. And si- the least of the servants did it. In a household, that was for the lowest ranking servant. Yeah, well, we got hired a new servant last week. So now you're the lowest ranking. You get to wipe the guest's feet. It's like it's like being the the least. It's like being the having the lowest seniority in the faculty meetings, and you don't have to thank God wash the other professors' feet, but that does mean you have to take notes in the meeting. You have to take the minutes. So um, it's like oh, the lowest ranking servant has to do this, and the Lord Jesus just did it. He just did the job of the lowest ranking servant there. He wasn't the lowest ranking one there, but he was willing to act as the lowest ranking one. And he said that was to be an example to them. And in a life of service and humbling himself, he, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes. And then most of all, in dying on the cross and taking on himself the sins of mankind. You know, he was the only human being who's ever walked on this earth who had absolutely no sins to atone for at all. Never omitted anything he should have done. Never did anything he should not have done. Never said anything he shouldn't have said. Nor was quiet when he should have spoken up. Never did anything accidentally that he didn't think about, but afterwards realized, I need to go back and ask so-and-so's forgiveness. Never did that once was completely without sin, as we read elsewhere in this book. God made him, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. No, he was rich in righteousness, and we were absolute paupers in righteousness, dead in trespasses and sins, without God and without hope and without God in the world. Uh, But... By his grace, then he took all his sins on us. The father turned his face away uh, when the son bore all our sins. What an amazing thing. How he, though he's rich, became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might become rich. We've been made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. How, How generous he has been to us. Even so, he set an example for us. Not only should we be servants, but we should also be generous in our giving. My, that's a tall order to live up to, isn't that? It's, well, we've got, we've got our work still cut out for us, don't we? We think, well, with all, with all that we've done hitherto, and some have been very generous, I suspect, well, I would expect we all contemplate Christ's generosity on our behalf and think, I've got still a large piece of work cut out by the grace of God to do. Uh, 
All right. Verses 10 and 11. Pressing on then. That was the, that was the central verse, though. Verse 9 for me was, was where it was at in this passage. Verses 10 and 11. And in this I give advice. It's to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That is, you, there was a readiness to desire it, so there may be a completion out of what you have. Out of what you have means according to your ability. So that puts a, uh, a, uh, uh, a caveat on that, a limitation on what he's saying. He's not saying you buy your way into heaven. He's not saying if you have enough money, you can get into heaven. But if you give enough money, but uh, no, he's not saying that at all. First of all, none, none of this is a good work that earns our salvation. We all know that, right? So that, that's right out of the question. But neither is it a matter of, well, if you want to please God, or if you want to give enough, or if you want to give a good Christ, be a good Christian, there's a price tag on it. No, it's out of what you have. So having been willing, that's a good thing to be willing. And if you're willing and, and you don't have anything to give, you know, Jesus said the widow who gave a mite uh, had given more than all the rich men who threw in ostentatious amounts, ostentatiously, uh, because there was a willingness to give. But if you, if you had a willingness to give and you just didn't have anything at all that you could give, well, that would be acceptable to God. And if you have a willingness to give and you can only give a, a little bit, and you do, that's good. And if you have a willingness to give and God's given you a lot and you're able to give a lot, then do that too. But just having a willingness and not carrying through on it, you know, you have, you have Faith Promise Day. And I, I know some people are very much into Faith Promise. That's like they... That's a, an approach that they like towards giving, and others less so. And, you know, every man is he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. But um, at any rate, <clears throat> uh, but just say where there's a faith promise drive, and you made a lavish faith promise, and so I'm going to give this much, and then you decided, well, I don't know. I, there is that new car, and I really would like to have, and I don't have nearly enough guns. Who does? But anyway, um, <laughs> so there, there goes the faith promise. There, that, that should be a conviction. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, uh, you know, uh, if we have, God has given us, let's follow through. Follow through according to what we have. God's not expecting us to give stuff that he hasn't given us. But if he's given it to us, then we need to follow through on the purpose that we made in our heart. Uh, all right. Onward, before our time runs completely out. Verse 12, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. That really goes to the preceding verse. And first a willing mind doesn't mean, uh, uh, the, Dr. Vincent said, it's not uh, priority and time, but if you have this willing mind before you, the willing mind uh, is being the primary thing, then the giving follows after that, according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. For uh, Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. So, uh, again, it's not a matter that you should impoverish yourself uh, so that others can live li in lavish lives. Oh, my. And I could, you know, I mentioned, I alluded very indirectly to uh, a sad, sad story about a uh, the ministry of, of someone that I had, uh, who's, some of whose teaching I had appreciated. That's another matter earlier. But um, 
here one thinks of ministries. Oh, there's a guy that's got a compound west on the west side of Fort Worth. And uh, I forget his name just now. That's probably just as well. That may be, that may be providential that I just don't name his name. But I, I, I think you would, and just, I, I've never appreciated any of his teaching at all. Uh, but uh, uh, lives in lavish riches. I don't know if he was the guy or if he was talking to another guy or if they were both agreeing this is true of both of them, but that they had to have private jets to fly around on their <coughs> ministry. And uh, they did this with the donations of God's people because you just had to have a private jet. And I, I can see here that that's just not biblical. God does not mean anybody to do sacrificial giving so somebody else can have a private jet or anything approaching that in any way whatsoever. The idea is not that, that um, others should be eased and you burden. The, not that, the idea is not that others can live in lavish luxury and you burden, but that there would be a sharing. God sees and is pleased with the believer's genuine desire to give. The object of Christian benevolence is not that the giver should be impoverished while the receivers limit abundance. Now, I don't know either that it's necessary for us to go splitting hairs and, and, and weighing out. And I've got to see the, the preacher's income tax return compared to mine before I know if I should give. No, that's silliness. But um, uh, n- not, uh, not that those who uh, are being supported by the gifts of God's people should live in lavish abundance uh, in, in great excess of what um, the givers actually are. Yeah. But by inequality, verse 14, that now, did I get it up there? Yes. At this time, your abundance may supply their lack, and that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. Verse 15, as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. That's, of course, a reference to gathering the manna. And you remember that they were supposed to gather, was it one omer, whatever that is, a day, And if they got greedy and gathered more than that, um, it would go bad. And if they, you know, God would uh, provide from that way. I think that, if I'm remembering right, uh, it may be that I'm having a memory glitch, but I think that was the case. Anyway, uh, as to this, though, uh, the material blessings that God gives us may not necessarily be all intended for us to lavish on ourselves. They might be intended for us to bless others. So God may not, you know, if God blesses me with a big bunch of money uh, or has been blessing me with money, it may not necessarily be his intention for me to get a boat. Um, Not to say it's sinful for you to have a boat. If God gives you a boat, that's great. But it might might not be his intention to give me one or uh, to... um, Oh, I don't know, enable me to go on a round-the-world trip, or uh, I don't know what would be a lavish thing that I might be tempted to uh, take, take off work for six months and go on a trekking journey to Mount Everest Base Camp. Now we start to get into things of temptation here. But um, anyway, not that much temptation, really. Um, But uh, no, God may not necessarily be giving us all that money so that we can lavish it on ourselves in luxury. Not, I mean, it is true God giveth us richly all things to enjoy, but it might be that God is giving us things so that we can be a blessing to others. 
Now, you think God would be more efficient, wouldn't he, in his distribution of this world's good? That he'd just, uh, you know, why, if he meant it, you know, it'd be like, you know, if he meant that money to be delivered to my brother over there, why wouldn't he just deliver it to him and not give it to me? So I have to give it to him. Well, you know the answer to that, right? It's really obvious, and we all know the answer to that. Thus, God binds the believers together that, that by sometimes giving me some money that he really meant for some of you all uh, in some situation, and then I can give it to you. And, then, uh, and that blesses me, and that blesses you, and then maybe sometime I'm in need of money, and, and so God gave the money to you all instead, and you gave it to me or whatever, and that blesses you, and that blesses me, and we bless each other in that way. And thus, the believers are drawn together. Okay, and that's all that I plan to get through today. It took a few minutes over. That's typical of me, I'm afraid. Anyway, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would... Uh, bless it to our hearts and help us to live according to it. We pray now that you bless in the service to come, that you would be with your servant as he brings us your word and give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and obey all that you would teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're dismissed.